This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, Rick Zamperin is with us, of course, uh, and uh, has just come back from a uh, uh, covering what has been just a, a terrible weekend in Dundas. Uh, tell us exactly what uh, transpired over this press conference and what you've been, uh, what you know about this so far. Well, no, no official uh, news conference has been held by Hamilton Police. We're kind of in a wait and see mode to hear what uh, police have for us. But uh, here's what we do know: mm-hmm. uh, Saturday morning, just after 10 o'clock, a 12-year-old Finnegan Dane was reported missing by his parents uh, in uh, in Dundas, mm-hmm. and. Um, at 3 p.m. yesterday, so this is Sunday, Hamilton police issue an, a province-wide Amber Alert. Mm-hmm. Less than an hour later, they announced that Finnegan uh, was found dead. And uh, now we're waiting for the autopsy results to come back. That autopsy is scheduled for today. So until that time, until those results are known, we're not going to hear from Hamilton police in terms of uh, cause of death and and, and a go-forward plan from from there. So obviously, long story short, uh, this 12-year-old goes missing Saturday, is found about 24 hours, a little bit more, uh, dead on, on Sunday, mere meters from his home, really. Uh, a couple of questions that are being, and, and again, we understand that there's only limited information at this time, and, right. and, and certainly understand that police have to do their job as well. Uh, but lots of questions are being asked. Uh, first one being, why did they wait so long to have an Amber Alert? Right. So there are uh, a certain number of criteria in terms of when an Amber Alert can be issued. Um, number one, the person has to be under the age of 18. In this case, Finnegan is, is 12, so they meet that criteria. Number two, there has to be a belief that the child has been abducted. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that is the case in this case. Um, so that is really a big question mark. There has to be a belief that the child is in imminent danger. Of course, we don't know the answer to that because we don't know if he just wandered off and, yeah. and fell. We do know he had mobility issues. He needed a wheelchair to get around. He had um, he had no shoes on. He was barefoot when mm-hmm. he was found. Uh, he just had a you know, T-shirt and shorts. And um, the last criteria is uh, that... Police will issue an Amber Alert if they feel that information from the public will help them find the individual that they're looking for. And right. I think when you look at all those criteria, you know, at least two of the four are met. A, he's under 18, and B, police want the public, want that neighborhood to come forward and say uh, and, and help out and, and provide any details they might have. Uh, and, and just another question on the whole Amber Alert. We'll talk to Ross McLean about this a little later. Um, uh, there has been some sensitivity about Amber Alerts. We remember when they started. And yeah. Of course, this one, uh, I was at home, as I mentioned, you with my son, and, and all of a sudden it came across the television and such. And it, boy, it gets your attention. Yeah. Yeah. And when these first started, there was a chatter that we were doing them perhaps too quickly. Mm-hmm. We weren't sure what the criteria was between all of the agencies involved in order to trigger one of these. Uh, do you think that in some way played anything into into how they well do we do this do we not do we don't yeah do it? I mean you know the difficulty and I'm and I you know I, I don't know how the discussion went at Hamilton Police headquarters but obviously it's probably a difficult conversation if they yeah. don't have you know a suspect vehicle or any problems in the home or any past history of you know violence or um, uh, you know that that this child was in harm in any uh, in any circumstance in the past so. 
if none of that is coming to the fore, Hamilton Police yeah. have, uh, or any police department would have a difficult decision to say, let's launch into an mm-hmm. Amber Alert because you know these are going on, uh, you know, on boards, on highways, you know, they're 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 on TV and radio. Yeah. I mean, this is a really mass kind of attention great. Oh, it's fantastic, yeah. and I think you know the I think the tool is 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 very more than useful, really. If, it, yeah. if it's going to help save one life, let alone who knows how many it saved, mm-hmm. uh, let's keep doing them. That's for sure. Uh, which, of course, makes you ask the question after waiting, t- uh, you know, a period of however many hours, right. what did finally trigger it? Yeah. And that's the question that I think most people are eager to find out, because, you know, how do you go from 10 a.m. Saturday yeah. uh, with a person with mobility issues who's four foot two, 60 pounds, you know, a 12 year old who's probably not going to get very far, very fast? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you wait that long to determine whether or not this child is in danger? But then again, if there are, and this is what we don't know, if there are issues where he's wandered in the past or he's gone missing before, we don't know that. So until we get, you know, all these pieces to the puzzle, we can only speculate. Uh, and uh, and again, these this is all speculation at this time due to limited information, and we understand that. But we had heard rumor, uh, and again, as you mentioned, he was found quite close to to his home. Yes. Uh, that this area had already been covered, and and uh, and and people are having a hard time understanding how you could have covered an area, even the people I guess who who've been searching, mm-hmm. and, and how all of a sudden a child turns up there. Yeah, we heard there was about two hundred neighbors who helped in the search. Obviously, this is a close knit community. It's yeah. it's not a a really uh, rural uh, atmosphere, even though it is Dundas. There are a lot of homes, a lot of townhomes in in the area where he was found. Uh, and, and basically, he was maybe 50 to 100 meters from his home. It was that close. Uh, and there was some, um, I guess, speculation, I guess, if we, if we can settle on that word, that he was found in a culvert or near a culvert mm-hmm. or, or near a creek. Um, and perhaps that area had been searched before, but was it searched by police? Was it searched by searchers? You know, how did he all of a sudden kind of appear, I think is, is, is a major question mark that I'm hopeful Hamilton police will have an answer to. How much do we know about the family? How much do we know about Finnegan? Really nothing other than Finnegan had a... Um, a neuromuscular disorder, which prevented him. I mean, he he walked around with a severe limp. He needed mm-hmm. that wheelchair to get around. Uh, he was a twelve-year-old um, who, uh, you know, from from what we heard, really there was no past history with with the family. We haven't really heard from the family. Um, once I guess the autopsy results come in, that'll be up to them whether they want to address, uh, you know, the community to to share their thoughts, to share their memories of, of Finnegan. And um, clearly, once we have those autopsy results, I'm sure we'll hear more from Hamilton Place. And you're at that area, uh, obviously the uh, the neighborhood. You can feel the uh, the sadness. You know what? It was it was, uh, it was very quiet. I can tell you that. Um, there's um, you know a bunch of vehicular traffic going back and forth. Uh, I did talk to one woman who didn't want to go on the air, but she was just wondering where uh, um, the memorial site was going mm. to be. You know, just to, to lay some flowers. And, and to my knowledge, there hadn't been one, or there mm-hmm. has there is not one right now. There was kind of a picnic area kind of table where a bunch of the volunteers, the people who were trying to help in the search had brought some water and, yeah. and food and other items to help. Uh, and that is still there uh, right beside the police command van, which is on, uh, you know, uh, very near to Sullivan's Lane where his body was found. Uh, but really a quiet neighborhood where people are just kind of trying to deal with what has happened. Very sad, very sad. And, you know, whenever you hear these or see these uh, alerts, you always hope that, uh, of course, they turn out positive. Rick yeah. Zamperin, thanks very much for taking Anytime. the time thanks, to join Scott. us on this with all the latest uh, has just come back from Dundas. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We all, uh, no doubt, heard 
the Amber Alert, which came across yesterday, uh, looking for 12-year-old Finnegan Dane and uh, hoped that all would be uh, would have a positive outcome. And then, of course, uh, it wasn't much time afterwards uh, that we sort of started to hear the truth. And it, and that's pretty much where the information stopped. Uh, obviously, police are investigating this and uh, are being quite tight-lipped at this point, which you can completely understand. Uh, but lots of questions do arise, including um, why waiting so long to trigger an Amber Alert? Then what was the final... Uh, situation uh, or event or issue that did trigger it and uh, how do we have search areas and go over areas that are quite close to the residence and and then miss something Uh, again uh, very easy to sit at this point and without any answers ask lots of questions and we have to give everybody time to uh, to do their uh, investigation and do their work and find out exactly what happened. Uh, to try to paint a more clear picture, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert. Uh, the Facebook page is Crime Power and Politics. You can find out more at RossMcLeanSecurity.com. He's with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? I'm good, but I'm quite sad over this this case, uh, Scott. You know, to, when I saw that first picture come out of the little boy that uh, gone missing, I mean, you know, all you wanted, all anybody wanted was for this to turn out well, and we're sitting here with the uh, the worst possible outcome. Uh, obviously, at this point of the investigation, very difficult for police to release any sort of information until they do the groundwork and, and preliminary. Uh, what does is, what is all of this or the lack of information tell you at this point? Well, I have to tell you, the the... <laughs> You know, you sort of you always get me with good questions, Scott. You know, and this one in particular. Normally, when you don't hear certain information, it tells you or it teaches you something about what's going on. In this particular case, I don't think that there's any plan. There seems to be just a real lack of um, communications about why the alert was issued, why, when the alert was cancelled, and what the situation is that's before us. There, there really seems to have been. Uh, I'm sorry to say, a lot of mistakes with the way this this Amber Alert uh, went out and was handled. Uh, do you think we're just assuming that now, and once we find out more information, that will explain itself? Well, I hope so, but, you know, we've, we've seen trouble before. This isn't the first time we've talked about the Amber Alerts mm. and what the situations are for them. Now, when I saw this, uh, the first uh, missing report come out for this young man, it came out on the Saturday morning that he was missing, uh, you know, nothing untoward, and, and in fact... It, it described as, as someone who walked with a limp. It didn't say anything about, uh, you know, he needed a wheelchair to get around. He was that disabled, those sort of things. He was missing overnight. Uh, they were still looking for him the following morning. Then the, then all of a sudden the Amber Alert comes out. Yeah. And, you know, in order to issue an Amber Alert, here's the guidelines that there are in Ontario for what the OPP has to have before they issue an Amber Alert. The law enforcement agency believes a child under the age of 18 years has been abducted and the law enforcement agency believes the child is in danger mm-hmm. and there is enough descriptive information about one or more of the following, the child, the abductor of the vehicle, to give information to put out. So all three of those conditions have to be met before they'll issue an Amber Alert. And uh, I'm not sure what led them to believe at that late time, uh, over a day afterwards, as to why they all of a sudden then believed he was abducted why he was in danger, and there was no additional information. So it doesn't seem to even meet the guidelines. Yeah, because you know, because I remember when it came across and, and watching it, there there was no suspect vehicle or any of that information at all that usually accompanies those sorts of things. 
Well, it's required. I mean, what I'm hoping is someone in the Hamilton Police Department said, you know, damn it, we don't have that, but we're so concerned because of the period of time this boy's been gone, he's disabled. Yeah. Do me a favor and, and put this out. We yeah. want to get some eyes on this. You know, maybe they twisted some arms and pulled a favor, or there's information that we don't know that's yet to come out. Uh, you bring up a valid point, and we, we've talked about this before when this new system started up, and, and, I, and I think everybody agrees it's a great system, it's a great idea, uh, although obviously, you know, still some bugs to be worked out. But uh, initially, there was a couple that came across quite frequently or, or, or soon after each other and turned out to be false alarms. Uh, and, and some people actually started complaining and whining about this system. Uh, do you think perhaps we're now being very cautious before we issue one? Do you think that has trans? Do you think that sort of thinking has perhaps had something to do with the decision to wait on this case? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure what the hang-up is with getting it right. As we've seen on criminal investigations, police departments across Ontario work together tremendously to you know to prosecute and find. Uh, criminals for big cases. I'm not sure what the hang-up here is in, in in order to get these Amber Alerts put out well. I mean, Amber Alerts started in 1996 in Texas, and the Amber stands for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. That's what it originally stood for, but uh, the, the, the kidnapping of a nine-year-old girl named Amber Hagerman, mm-hmm. and the police wanted to stop this. So it's been going since 1996. So you'd like to think that we can get the communications clear you know, I remember talking to, I believe it was uh, uh, the OPP officer who who actually issues these out of Barrie, I believe it was, and he said that uh, it's it's not on their end. The problem is with uh, getting this to technology, local cable companies, and all the way down through the system. But that being said, uh, as you mentioned, this information starts at one source, right? Yeah, we have to get it together. And something else that was really unfortunate about uh, this particular case is apparently when the information came out that the Amber Alert has ended. I heard some radio stations put out, and I saw some people put out things that, oh, you know, good news, the Amber Alert is over. Yeah. Okay, the Amber Alert is over. And uh, I actually felt amazingly relieved myself. I was watching you, the, the you, stuff going on. You, you bring up a very valid point, Ross. When I saw uh, half an hour later, or however long it was that it would be, had been canceled, I just assumed it was a positive outcome. Yeah, and, and I actually was guilty myself as I put out a tweet that says, good news, the Amber yeah. Alert is over. They've located him. Mm-hmm. And then somebody, uh, another cop who follows me, I think it was somewhere, said, hey, are you sure that it's good news, that he's safe? You want to double check on that? Yeah. And I went and I looked, and I found that the uh, the Hamilton police had not put out any information on their social media. The OPP hadn't put out any information on their social media. And then it came out that, no, we don't know what his condition is when he was found. So there wasn't uh, I understand that perhaps one media company got the jump on that. They found out that it had been ended or it was going to end and put it out, and then it steamrolled. So mm. we, we need to have some clear, crisp, uh, timely communications on these issues because the public is so concerned. I know that neighborhood was so out there looking for this young man. Uh, we had also heard uh, something, and again, this is all still early information that can't be confirmed, that they, you know, obviously the child was found relatively close to home, uh, an area which some had said had already been searched, and we're having a hard time understanding how uh, all of a sudden it could appear there. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, the police will certainly have their search protocols for doing this, and it has not been a secret to police since uh, forever that many times, oftentimes, when children go missing, 
and parents can't find them when they're younger, that in fact they're found within a thousand yards of their home. Yeah. You know, they're hiding uh, in a basement somewhere, they're under the porch, they're in a shed, they're doing something. So typically the police search grid will, will go very high and hard on the immediate area for looking at this. So we're going to have to see that those areas were searched, uh, how they were searched, if they were searched adequ- adequately, or if they were overlooked. But it's it's quite often the case. The same thing happens when they, when the states they have what are called silver alerts for people with dementia who go missing, hmm. and quite often they're found uh, a very very short distance away. So you have to do a very very intense uh, nearby search. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert. The Facebook page is Crime Power and Politics. Ross, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Yeah, hopefully we'll get some more information on your station later about this. I'm sure we'll talk soon, yes. Uh, Of course, talking about 12-year-old Finnegan Adane, who uh, an Amber Alert was issued uh, yesterday and then uh, called off uh, shortly thereafter. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Blog and commentary on The Scott Thompson Show page and blog, helping a Hamilton family. Uh, Just a tragic story coming over the weekend. Two tragic stories, of course, uh, the story of the disappearance of 12-year-old Finnegan Danae, and then, of course, uh, his body being found uh, shortly after an Amber Alert being issued. And then starting the weekend, uh, I guess it was early Saturday morning, when a fire broke out at uh, 70 Niagara Street and uh, 11 people in the house and all get out except three victims, including uh, Robert, little child, little boy Robert, uh, a little girl Abby, and Mother Victoria Mare, all perishing uh, in that fire. Uh, GoFundMe page has been set up. We're going to find out more about that coming up in just a sec. But also, uh, what happens? How does this change the psyche of not only a neighborhood, a family, uh, a city, when we have bookend tragedies like this. And what can the community do to help, uh, most importantly? Gary Dierenfeld is with us at this point, yoursocialworker.com to find out more. He is with us now. Hello, Gary. How are you today? Another sad day. Oh, my goodness. Uh, this was a tragic weekend for Hamilton. It was. What does this do to a city? It. it we all mourn when someone like this or someone in a neighborhood uh, experiences such tragedy. How does it bring a city together? You know, uh, Hamilton is, from my perspective, an interesting city that way. Uh, it is a city, you know, with uh, the amalgamation, we're over a half a million uh, strong, yet it has that small town feel. Yeah. And when there are tragic losses such as we're experiencing this weekend, it sends shockwaves, I think, anyways, through the entire city, through the entire community. What is it about uh, events like these two that resonate with people? There's lots of bad things that happen in the world. I mean, my goodness, it seems every day there's a shooting in Toronto of some sort. What is it about these sorts of scenarios? Well, you know, we look at people involved and we say, really, they're no different from you and I. And that could just as easily been uh, my family or, or, or a neighbor or a friend's family. So there's a reality that touches us all, and, and that reality includes our vulnerability. How does helping help us? You know, when things are out of control, when there's a fire, when there is a child lost, um, the... We can't deal with that uncertainty. Helping 
helps ease the uncertainty, helps us feel like we, we're doing something to regain control in a situation uh, that is so clearly out of control. What does this do to help the family recover as they see this outpouring of support? Well, <laughs> it's going to take a lot to recover from these uh, particular losses. But there is that sense of community, that wraparound, that feeling that others are there to share in our grief and, and to lend, lend a hand and be a shoulder. It helps us cope. It just helps us cope. We're social beings, and when we're at a loss, we do need to be propped up by the goodwill of others. Uh, for those who uh, tragically were in and around this event when it happens, uh, either of these events, whether it's the discovery of a, of a young child's body, whether it's a, a house fire that's, that, that's panicking the street, uh, how do you... How do you how do you live with those memories? How do you live with those images? Whether, you know, uh, we heard the story of, of, of uh, when, when uh, Finnegan Danny's body was found and, and the lady who was involved in the search and, and the sound of somebody saying we'd found them, we'd found them, and, and, and then obviously the few minutes later when, when it wasn't positive news, or, or even the story uh, with the house fire with, with the grandmother uh, you know, screaming in the street for her babies. How do you how do you move on with those images? Actually, you don't move on too easily. Uh, we're human. We are touched deeply by these images. These images can be quite traumatic uh, to us as the so-called bystander. Bystander makes us sound a little bit too passive. Uh, there were people, uh, you know, aiding in the search. They're more than bystanders. I, I don't mean to say anything uh, that minimizes their role. Mm. But there, there is that sense of tragedy that will hit those who are nearby as well. It is frightful. It is traumatic. And not, not, you know, in the, not just for the, the friends and neighbors, but also for the first responders. Yeah. Uh, I have no doubt that those firefighters who had to go into that, you know, burning building felt terrible, will continue to feel terrible, and will feel haunted uh, by the experiences that they've just endured. So there is a lot to cope with. Um, uh, finding, I don't know if the right word is solace, but but uh, support in friends and family talking about these things uh, are known to help ease ease the the effect of these traumatic experiences. What about the survivors, the ones that were actually involved, whether it be a car accident and someone dies and someone survives, whether it's a tragic house fire like we've experienced in Hamilton where uh, seven survive and, and or, or three perish and, and the rest survive. Uh, how do they deal with the why me syndrome? Right. Uh, there's a concept known as survivor guilt. Uh, why not me or why me? Mm -hmm. And uh, they too, you know, it just points to the uncertainty of life. Mm. And uh, how do we cope with that tremendous uncertainty? And as human beings, we typically crave certainty. We want to know that there's a reason for things. And uh, for some folks, they will turn to their faith to provide some sort of 
answer or solace or support. Uh, not everyone has that, and they will have to find other ways to cope with that, uh, in a sense, uh, survivor guilt on top of the tra trauma of the experience. So we, there will be a whole bunch of affected uh, people out there by all these tragedies, and we do want them to find support. We do want them to consider counseling, particularly if those feelings are overwhelming or those feelings interfere with sleep, with eating, with uh, self-care, with uh, uh, performance at work. Those are some of the indicators that suggest uh, you've been so affected that maybe you need some help to cope more, uh, more effectively. What do we take away from situations like this? What do we learn? Do we, should we take something? Should we learn something from these? Well, uh, there is something that, that, that we do take away, and that is the fragility, the fragility of human life. And uh, it forces us all to look at our own mortality and to take stock and to think, you know, we're but for the grace of God, but what if it were I? Yeah. What if it was me? What if it was my loved one? So, so many people throughout Hamilton uh, in the days and weeks to come are going to be contemplating uh, their own mortality in view of uh, these terrible experiences. In result of what? Hopefully, hopefully appreciating life more? Uh, some will uh, perhaps do that. Some will experience what we would call an existential crisis. Who am I? Where am I? Uh, where do I belong? What is life all about? Mm. And if you are already prone to depression or to anxiety, those big questions can trigger um, uh, uh, a, a deepening of those challenging feelings and emotions. Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, YourSocialWorker.com, to find out more. Gary, as always, appreciate your help and guidance. Good to be with you. Uh, a city mourns, and uh, thank you for letting us share this information for people to get support. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Tragic fire that happened in Hamilton uh, early Saturday morning. Uh, 70 Niagara Street erupts into flames, 11 people inside, uh, and unfortunately, Victoria Mayor. Uh, her daughter, Abby, and son, Robert, did not make it out. Uh, as a result, we have a GoFundMe. They have, somebody has set up a GoFundMe page uh, in order to uh, support the family through this very difficult time. I went on to the GoFundMe page on the weekend, and I was quite surprised to read that there were, had been a lot of comments there that uh, were less than positive. And then certainly, or maybe one or two like that, and then uh, certainly response to that person, uh, which was evident and, and sort of takes away from what we're all there for to do, and that's to, uh, to help out uh, this family. So do GoFundMe pages work? What issues can arise from this way of uh, raising funds when needed? Joining us now is uh, a marketer, an expert on social media, Mark Gordon, and he is with us now. Hello, Mark. How are you today? Good, good. Great to be here. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, I went to this page on the weekend, and uh, I think the initial uh, post had been taken down, which inflamed a lot of people, but certainly there were all kinds of responses to someone who said something that wasn't very flattering on this page. Does that happen often? Do you ever see that? 
Yeah, you know, regretfully, social media, it can do so much good, but it's also a, a great magnet for, you know, what are referred to as trolls and, and just people and individuals who have an axe to grind, who have issues with everything, or are just really unhappy in their lives and, and love the ability to vent at pretty much everything and anything uh, from the comfort of being in their pajamas and the security of their home. Hmm. Uh, whose responsibility is it to manage that? Is that the person who sets up the page? Is that the GoFundMe people? Well, that's a great question. Um, it would be easy to say uh, that it should be the individual who uh, who put up the page or put up the posting. Um, many would argue in the case of the Twitter, for example, you know, when you get a lot of of negative tweets or hate tweets or, or everything from racial or, or whatever, uh, those kinds of messages posted, that really it should be Twitter that should monitor that. And, and the same goes for Facebook. And a lot of these sites do their best to take that kind of stuff down. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's your post or your blog or in this case, you know, someone posting something on GoFundMe and... Yeah, regretfully, you know, if something comes up and they can delete it, they certainly should. They'll see it before anyone else. Uh, how how do these ways, means of raising funds, uh, are, are they effective? How do they work? Is, it, is this a, a good way to raise funds in a short period of time? I think this is a great way. And in the case of this family, I mean, there's this terrible tragedy. You know, this is a, a great way for them to, to reach out and for, I mean, this is being the whole thing here is being orchestrated by a relative of the family, which is great, and it's a it's an opportunity for the community to pull together and support a family like this in their time of need. What's crucial here is transparency, and I think they've done a great job of that. It's being managed by a relative, which is always a good thing. Uh, what I found interesting, though, is with everything the family's been through, they're only looking for $25,000, mm. which, you know, you have to wonder, that, that's hardly anything. I mean, it's it's a good thing in the fact that they aren't looking for an astronomical amount of money. It's always easier to reach that bar when it's a little bit lower. But, uh, you know, you, you almost want to say to this group, guys, you're, you know, you've lost your home, you've lost your family. Is 25 grand really going to do it? But, yeah. you know, but having said that, you know, they are being very, very uh, modest in here, you know, and, and they're not trying to get rich off this. And, and I think that's what's crucial uh, for a GoFundMe campaign of any type to be successful is to to really be transparent, to not ask for too much, to explain what the money is being used for, where it's going, and have it managed effectively. We had heard that there might be issues with this page, uh, and none of this has been con- confirmed, and we're actually trying to get a hold of GoFundMe to, to, to have this discussion. Um, what is the criteria for, can anybody set one up for any cause? Uh, does there have to be a legitimate... Uh, relation to the to the person you're setting this up for, uh, you know, because obviously there there is a lot of room for for fraud here. Yeah, there is, and uh, you know, if you kind of go through GoFundMe, you'll see many many instances of of uh, domestic issues where one parent will say, you know, I'm going through this issue, I, I want to get my kid back, but I need a lawyer. Right. So can you throw some money in the pot to help me get a lawyer? And that's one side of the story. You know, there's so many instances like that. Uh, other instances of, of somebody saying, hey, I want to help this group who, who lost their home or, or don't have a car, and they collect money, and the money never makes it to where it's supposed to go. The fact is, you know, a site like GoFundMe, they can't police everything. Right. I mean, it's, it's logistically impossible, and I think 
as a community and as individuals, it's up to us to really decide which, you know, which group you want to give to. And, uh, you know, we all want to help our community. And I think the fact that this is a story not only everyone can relate to, but the press, you know, you guys and all the newspapers have really jumped on board and said, look, this is a worthy cause. This is a real family, a real situation. And, you know, as a community, we should really focus on, on helping them out. What should, uh, any guidance or tips for people who are setting up such pages? Uh, what sort of issues can arise from doing this? Uh, well, obviously there's going to be issues with regards to how that money is being spent. You know, if someone's going to give you $100, $50, or even $1,000, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to want to know that that money is going where it's supposed to go. And in the past, there's been many issues where you'd get a, uh, a specific individual, a relative, or a friend raising money. They're asking for, let's say, $20,000. The heartstrings of the community really get pulled, and instead of collecting, you know, the, the 20000 they want, they end up with thirty. Right. So now people are like, well, what are you doing with that extra money? Yeah. And the person becomes hard to reach or, or disappears, and, you know, more questions get raised. So what's important is transparency. That's what's key. People want to know that you know, if there's extra money, where's it going to go? Is it going to go to a charity? Is it going to go to the family? That's what's key. Nobody wants any secrets being kept. Good advice. Mark Gordon has been with us, marketer, expert in social media, talking, of course, of course about uh, GoFundMe pages and uh, their validity. And, of course, but you, you say all around this is a great way to do it. This, yeah, I would definitely say this is a great way to do it. And, again, the fact that you guys have been so great in uh, letting the community know about this cause. Um, I think it's, it's great for the family. Mark Gordon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I don't know if I have a... I, I don't have a problem with this, but I do think it's funny. I don't have a problem with it because I think he's a modern guy. He's just a modern prime minister. Guess who I'm talking about? Uh, Justin Trudeau and... <laughs> Uh, I love that the CBC picked up on this. Shirtless Justin Trudeau accidentally photobombs BC beach wedding. Uh, This happened earlier on in the week. He's on vacation. Uh, There's a wedding that's taking place on a public beach in Tofino, BC. Um, And, you know, I guess he's he's out there. He's surfing. He's got the wetsuit on, but he's got it. He's got it pulled down uh, to his waist. And uh, I guess he sort of stumbles on them when they're coming down in their wedding procession. So the bride's actually walking down the aisle. It's a beach wedding. And uh, all of a sudden, the photographer takes the picture. And the bride is wearing a beautiful dress suited for the beach. Uh, The groom has white shorts on, very casual sort of thing. But not as casual as the man standing behind them with a bright yellow surfboard. And it's a shirtless Justin Trudeau. Are we are we seeing too much of our prime minister, or is he just a modern metrosexual leader? He's a modern guy. He's a dad. He's not afraid to go out and go cash. And you know, when I brought this up, uh, Jacob was uh, who who doesn't see the problem with it. And I, I don't think most young people do. I think just most older people look at it's like, why do we keep seeing pictures like this of this guy? I think that's what it is. And the fact that he runs, you know, like, for example, on the steps of the church where Jim Flaherty's funeral was and takes a selfie with somebody who asks from the crowd. 
There's just times and there aren't times. And Jim Flaherty's funeral isn't a time for a selfie. I'm wondering if this isn't a selfie, but certainly it could have been. And, you know, wrong place, wrong time. He's not making any fuss. He's just standing there and watching the couple go by. What's he doing wrong? He's just standing there shirtless. It's not like, you know, he went up and gave her a kiss or anything. Um, but we seem to be seeing a lot of these. And, and, and Jacob sends me a link of all these past leaders we've seen with shirts without shirts on. And I'm thinking, you know, I see your point, Jacob, but this is different. Uh, I guess in, in one, you know, this people can, well, he looks good in this one. Those other leaders, they're, it's, they're taken by paparazzi in, you know, moments when they probably shouldn't have been taken. I don't think there's a lot of official photographs there. Not that this is an official photograph, but it is for this bride. It certainly is now. You know, this one's moved to the front of the list. This is the one everyone wants the copy of. And on this list, of course, you know, uh, Putin, uh, Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, Kim Campbell. Let's not forget Kim Campbell. She posed behind uh, her gown, naked behind the gown that she would wear on the bench. Remember that? Was she prime minister then? I think this was before she was prime minister. Either before or after. I'm not sure it was actually when. Uh, but anyway, so uh, the end result, uh, you know, there we have another selfie of our... What it makes me... You know what it makes me think about? I got to do more sit-ups. That's how I'm feeling about the whole thing. Perhaps I need to do more sit-ups. Are there too many selfies, too many naked bodies, too many cash shots? Or is this our modern metrosexual leader? He's a family man. He's an average guy, kind of, other than his wealth, perhaps. So are we making too big a deal out of this? Uh, let's bring in Tony Chapman, speaker, moderator, and ask him his opinion. Tony, what are your thoughts here? Is this too much of a PM, or is well, he just a modern leader? Well, first of all, I think he's, the average guy doesn't do 200 sit-ups a day. And, uh, I, you know, I listen, he's... All, all for this sort of strip and delight prime minister. He knows how to play social media better than anybody. He's taken Obama's game and he's multiplied it by 100 because he knows that picture will be shared and amplified uh, tens of millions of times around the world. What I question, though, is should he be focusing on shirt losses and pop-up paparazzi or should he be looking at job losses? Hmm. I mean, he's running, uh, he's running the country. We've just had the worst job losses, 31,000 last month. We're approaching 7% unemployment. Youth, is, youth unemployment is skyrocketing. Our worst showing in five years, and this is with a cheap currency, and this is with uh, a, a budget that's supposed to be a stimulus budget. So I would, I would say that at this time, like, you know, if our economy is running smooth, man, get out there and build Canada's brand. The guy's a rock star. And that means uh, posing without a shirt on for sure. But I, I think the average Canadian is going to be looking around going, Who's running the shop? Who's focused on the things that really matter? So I, I would say to you that uh, what he does is a social media superstar. It, the timing, though, I don't think is the right timing right now. Is something like this Tony out of his hands, though? I mean, after all, he was just out on vacation doing his thing, and then all of a sudden stumbles across a wedding. Is it, you know, uh, should he have run and hid? What should he have done? Unless he's hiking in the most remote corner of the world, you know you're going to stumble on people with cell phones. 
Hmm. Everybody knows who Justin Trudeau is. He pops out of the cave without a shirt. He shows up in BC on a surfboard and, and you know, photo bombs a wedding. I think that's a fairly planned. Putin, by the way, you mentioned him earlier. Totally staged photograph. Anytime you want to make your uh, your leader seem like a hero, put Ronald Reagan on a horse, you know, JFK, the t- you know, the TV superstar, uh, Putin like looking like he's brought in like the biggest salmon that, that's ever swum on the planet. <laughs> These things are all set up to kind of set a persona of who you are. Does Trudeau think, need Does Trudeau need adding to that tough guy image? I mean, well, you he's know, not doing it for tough guy. He's doing it like I'm the regular guy. Yeah. Like I, I, I am the, I'm the most average accessible leader in the world. And by the way, I happen to be what many people feel is gorgeous, and I've got this great body, and I know that. My God, the Prime Minister of Canada photobombs this wedding with a surfboard. He knows there's 100 million hits. Yeah. It's, it's great publicity for what he's trying to convey. I'm the everyday guy. But I think that, uh, you know, I, I think there's business to be done in Canada. And that business is we've got to start creating a new economy. We can't borrow our way to grow. And that's the thing that I would say that the average Canadian is going to start saying, look, at the honeymoon's over. What are you doing about my economy? What are you doing about how I feel about the insecurities I feel about my job. And that's going to be a hell of a lot more important than how good you look in that with a, you know, a, a wetsuit pulled down to your waist. You talked about building the brand, and you know he and his wife have certainly done that. Uh, at what point does that become a negative? Well, it can always be a positive. I mean, you think the British monarchy, what they've done for British fashion around the world. So he can always have this role. As long, you know, if he can walk in with a trade mission and open up doors for Canadian business. If he can walk in and get in, and invite people to come and invest money in a new economy and technology, things that are going to, you know, let our kids grow and prosper going forward, I go all for it. Like, do it. Like, absolutely build that persona because people can't get enough of you. Isn't, the, isn't that what he's doing here, though? Well, no, because he's not backing it up. I mean, yeah. he's, he's creating the persona, but what he's not, it's not turning into jobs. He's not going out and doing trade missions, he's popping it, popping up at a wedding. I'd rather see him looking gorgeous in a tuxedo in Beijing uh, with, the, with the Chinese government and bringing back hundreds of millions of dollars with the trade or going to Silicon Valley and convincing all the people that, that, that are wondering what's going to happen if Trump gets in power to set up shop in Waterloo. I'd mm. rather see him spending his time popping up with his opportunity versus popping up for his opportunity. That being said, he w- I'm playing devil's advocate here, Tony. Uh, he's, he's, he's on holidays. Uh, no question. Look, listen, he deserves a holiday like anybody else. But again, I go back. If you've got that kind of celebrity stature that he has, he has the ability to walk into just about any boardroom or government office around the world because the world is fascinated by, by Justin Trudeau, like he used to be fascinated by his dad, then turn it to an advantage. But, you know, if that's the case, then I'd love to say why he's in B.C. Go spend some time and look at our, our, the battery technology that's going out there. Look at some of the ways they're trying to harness the ocean waves for electricity. Look at some of the great uh, uh, innovative work that's happening with AdTrack Media out of Vancouver and Subway Tunnel. And say, hey, by the way, I'm on Hollywood. But I just spent three or four days, and I want to showcase to the world what's happening in B.C. Then I'd go, man, that's a guy that's working for me while he's on vacation. Hmm. Uh, let's bring in uh, caller Kathleen on this. Kathleen, what are your thoughts? Uh, are we seeing too much of our prime minister, or is he just a modern leader? 
Oh, my God, you guys, like it's summer, it's August, people have holidays, the guy's on holiday, he's naturally an extrovert, um, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, it's not like he looked up to find out who was getting married that day on a beach somewhere, mm-hmm. I mean, give the guy a break, he's also a young man, and I'm in my middle ages, so it's not just young people like your assistant who thinks that it's an okay thing, yeah, sure, he has gravitas when he's at the trade conferences, but the last guy's going on and on about, oh, I should visit a technology plant. He's got three kids, and he doesn't get on holiday that often, I'm sure. So let give the guy a break. You're always picking on him, Scott. I'm not picking on him. I love yeah, the man. You love to pick I on him. I love the man. Fault. He's my next vote. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, right. <laughs> Thank, okay. Thanks, Kathleen. So what do you think of Kathleen's comment, Tony? Are we just, you know, because that's what's appealing to people. He's the average guy. She, she's made one. She's made a very good point. He's on holidays. He's got these three kids. He's spent a lot of time traveling around the world. He's been down in the states a number of times. He spent some great time with Obama. But he was hired to do a job, and that job is to, is to create and protect the livelihood of Canadians. To find a way to make sure we have jobs going forward that we're not burying our kids in cement with the, the kind of debt we're taking on. That's what he's hired to do. And unfortunately, when you're the leader of a country. You have to take, you're going to take some personal sacrifices. So if he's in BC on holiday, go for it. Spend 20 of the 22 days on holidays, go surfing, pop up the weddings, go for it. Spend two days showing the world what kind of technology uh, that British Columbia has to offer. Then I could say, you know what, that's what a leader of a free country should be doing. Is he still in election mode? Oh, of course. He's in, he's in, he's in persona mode. The guy has not stopped. I mean, he is. Obama spent his first term chasing talk shows. He was on every talk show that moved, right? And that's what Justin Trudeau's doing. He knows he has cachet, mm-hmm. which I'm not, I'm not denying him that. I'm, not, I'm, I'm thrilled that a little country like Canada has a leader that's captivated the world's attention. Yeah. Just turn it to our advantage. Make it, make it something that's going to be to our advantage versus just simply, I'm going to take on, I'm going to go and get elected on a $10 billion in deficit, turn it into $40 billion, and yet our job losses, like we, the media never talked about these job losses last week. All we want to talk about is him without a shirt on. Uh, Doris is on the line. If you want to call 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Doris, are we seeing too much of our new prime minister, or is this a modern leader? Oh, give him a break. And the gentleman <laughs> ahead of you, the guy's on his vacation, and he's supposed to be thinking about all the job losses. And further to this comment about him photo-opping, he was on the beach surfing. He was, they, the gentlemen who were with him, backed off when they saw the wedding party coming down the stairs to have their wedding taken by the sand. Why did the photographer not base themselves on the bride and groom coming down the stairs? Well, because if you've got the prime minister standing next to your wedding party and you're the photographer, you're going to get a pic of it, Doris. Come on. But they moved aside. Why did they aim it to the prime minister? And what did the photographer get paid for taking that picture? Well, I'm, I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, oh, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, Doris. What the hell is the significance of that? So, in other words, you think the the wedding party paid him order to conclude the... No, no, the... no, the photographer said, oh, my goodness, I've got... Oh, so now he's going to sell the rights to it, you mean. Right, but... Don't you, think the bride, don't you think the bride and groom would have uh, have something to say over that? They're uh, in the picture, too. No, but their pictures are owned by the photographer. But, the, uh, that, but the, they're on vacation. Would you give them a break? All right. Thanks for the call, Doris. Much appreciated. Uh, we got to give them a break, Tony. Are you buying that? 
You know, I, I, they're all, listen, you're going to get a lot of people going, give him a break. He's on holidays with his three kids. He deserves to do whatever he does. He absolutely does. But it seems to be that he's also spending time making sure he gets engaged with the public and he wants those pictures shown to the world. Again, I'm not against that. All I'm saying to you that if he's got time to do that, he's got time to be also focused on what we're paying to do, which is to uh, make Canada great again. So at what point does this go from, as we were talking earlier, a great branding exercise to self-promotion? It's self-promotion until he can demonstrate to us that what he's doing is promoting, his self-promotion is promoting Canada. It's to the advantage of Canada. And I'm I'm sure he can make that happen because, again, there's very few people on this planet that has this positive celebrity cachet. The world cannot get enough right now of this guy which I think is amazing. It's very few times in Canada's history we've had a leader that the world's captivated by. Yeah. All I would love to do is to have some of the smartest people in Ottawa saying, how can we turn it to the advantage of building our economy? How can we do it so that our youth are not going to inherit the kind of debt we're taking on uh, on this watch? Tony Chapman has been with us. Tony, if we want to find out more about what you're doing, website, anywhere we can go? Yeah, TonyChapmanReactions.com or at Tony Chapman on Twitter. Tony, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.